0: I'm the jabs, motherfucker!
1: Hello and oh no. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Allo Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California. In Malibu, Silver Lake, and Western Los Angeles, Allo was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a place where addicts and alcoholics are treated with connection and compassion rather than control. They have decades and decades and decades and decades of experience treating addiction, alcoholism, and co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure that if you're kicking drugs, your detox is as comfortable as possible, which we all know is critical at detox. If you're kicking heroin or benzos or alcohol or anything, you want your detox to be as comfortable as possible. They have amazing amenities, including sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy, the potentially incredibly spiritual sweat lodge experience, and much more. Basically, they have a, an amazing facility, and if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I highly recommend going to Aloe. And last but not least, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by listeners like you, the most important listeners, in the Dopey Nation, through the Dopey Patreon page. And you go to the Dopey Patreon page just by going to patreon.com slash And there is oodles and oodles and oodles of extra Dopey material there that we just pump out for you guys. So if you want to support the show, just know that it really helps us out uh, by kicking down a few bucks to Dopey Patreon. This week, there's going to be exciting new stuff. All you have to do is join. There are tiers $2 tier gets you a bunch of shit, $5 tiers gets you more shit, plus the dopey Zoom at the end of the month, and then the $10 tier gets you a preview of a bonus episode that comes out later. So there's tiers, there's tons of dopey material, Uh, $5 tier gets stickers, I believe, maybe $10. I'll give you stickers no matter what. Just sign up for Dopey Patreon, kick down a few bucks, helps the show be better, Also, at DopeyPodcast.com, we have tons of merchandise. The new Nick shit is beautiful. We've got all sorts of stuff. We're about to put on an end of the springtime sale, so look for that. A bunch of our designs are going, 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 and gone, and new shit is going to come out this summer. We also have those new non-flat-brim hats on DopeyPodcast.com, and if you want the classic Dopey shit, fucking... Hit me up on Venmo, and I've got the dopey snapbacks, the Oyvay snapbacks, and a bunch of stickers. Enough with these incredibly long-winded ads. Here is the show. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave. And um, fuck it, man. I was talking to Sam, and he's like, well, what is a flat-brimmed hat? And I have to be honest with you guys. I never heard of such a thing as a flat-brimmed hat until we started selling Dopey snapback hats. And everyone started writing, I prefer a curved-bill hat. And in my whole life, I fucking just bent the brim. I have a dopey snapback, and I bend the brim. Because I'm no hipster. I like a curved bill, but I like a snapback. So if that answers anybody's questions about hats, all hats are different, and all brims can be bent. I'm going to leave it at that. Now, I got an email today that really annoyed the shit out of me, so I wanted to start the show by reading it to you guys. And he doesn't want me to say his name. He says, this isn't a letter to read online, just something I wanted to share. And I figure I won't say his name, but I'll read it online. I think that's fair. Anyway, after hearing uh, that episode about two months ago that was pure war stories, maybe with Ryan, and I'm assuming he's talking about Ryan Leone, and hearing the early Nod Squad episodes, I realized hearing them brought back all of the darkness of addiction that we tend to forget and the evil things people do when they're really hard into their addiction. However, hearing dopey change to what often sounds like a 12-step recruitment show where the moment you get clean, everything is roses is bullshit, and it makes it really fucking hard on a lot of people. Another long-term dope I've been talking to is experiencing the same thing. A shitload of people like myself get on dope to help deal with their mental illnesses, be it depression, anxiety, bipolar, etc. Eventually, the drugs start making shit worse. But when they get sober, their illness is back. Plus, they have, and they spell their T-H-Y apostrophe R-E instead of T-H-E-I-R, but that's just my own commentary. Their illness is back. Plus, they have more problems to deal with. Maybe a criminal record. Debts, lost relationships. I lost the love of my life 10 years ago, 10 years with my high school sweetheart. She walked out the door. It's been 14 years since then, and I think of her every fucking day. So, what am I suggesting? Maybe some guests not praising 12 step, maybe some honesty about the challenges when getting clean. Just a suggestion. Uh, and then he says, I've been saying I would be writing you about the co- pros and cons and new medical-assisted treatment options, and I'm sorry I haven't done that. Uh, I will get something written up. Now, I don't need to say your name, but I really want to talk about what you wrote. Now, first of all, um, when we started Dopey, anybody who knows, uh, I had, I don't know, four or five months clean. I was not in great shape, and, uh, and I was out of my mind. All I wanted to do was get high, all I could think about was getting my estranged family back. Uh, I missed being a drug user. I certainly was in, was totally uncomfortable going to 12-step meetings. It disgusted me. Uh, I loved making fun of meetings. And the truth is, I don't love meetings now. I went to a meeting today. It felt like I was in the twilight zone where everyone said the same thing over and over some dude talked about his disease doing push-ups in the parking lot. It was just – it's often the same thing. However, I think by actually doing the work and, uh, and, and doing the spiritual component of the work gave me my path out. That's what gave me my path out. Now, I do not want Dopey to be some fucking 12-step recruitment Plan whatsoever. I do not want that. I love the idea of the alt recovery movement. I love the idea of there being an infinite number of ways to getting addicted and an infinite number of ways to getting out of being addicted. And what that means is find something you like and engage. Find something that isn't you and think about it. Go fishing, play fucking football, play backgammon, bake cookies fucking figure out the secret of the Othello cookie. Do therapy. Do something. Join a 12-step program. Or if writing me super complaining emails about why the show isn't the show that you want it to be, write me emails. If that makes you happy, if it gets you out of your head, I support you. Maybe you should make the podcast that you think Dopey should be. Maybe that could be the thing. I don't think it's going to be as good as Dopey, but what are you going to do? Those are my thoughts. But I am incredibly excited about the show. We're coming up on the 300th episode. I know you guys are psyched. If you're super psyched, send in a voicemail expressing your pleasure. Send in a voicemail with a fucked up dopey story. Um, Interestingly enough, years ago, when I was getting high on heroin, I had my, my job that I talk about all the time. I used to make this music show and one of the gigs at the music show was there was a hipster party at this club on Bleecker Street called Life there was this weird sort of hipsterish sex drugs and rock and roll I don't know I think it was a website but and it was it was actually a printed magazine it was called Pop Smear and they would have porn stars and rock stars and stories about drugs And it was, like, all very fringy and wild. And they had a party at this club called Life on Bleecker Street, and it was the Pop Smear Party, and it was full of porn stars. And the music was provided by this guy called Wayne Kramer. And Wayne Kramer was the guitar player of the seminal 60s band from Detroit called the MC5. And I was all high on heroin uh, at this party, and I was like... I was kind of, like, hitting on the strippers that were dancing and fucking around with the porn stars, And, and I interviewed Wayne Kramer, and I was all high. And I never really knew his story, but I always thought it would be fun to get him back on Dopey or interview him again on Dopey through the lens of drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, including recovery. And then I read his book, and I just could not believe how Dopey it was. Took a long time to get him to come on the show. But before we get to Wayne Kramer, I want to know what interferes with your happiness. What prevents you from reaching your goals? I know for me, I struggle when I don't have anyone to talk to. I can't get anything done. I need to talk everything to death. And a great place to process your feelings and thoughts is BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment. You can start communicating in under 24 hours, and it is not self-help. It is actual counseling. Everything you say is absolutely confidential, super convenient, super affordable. They'll help you with depression, stress, anxiety, addiction, whatever. They will help you whatever you need help with. They have a counselor who can help you. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a Dopey listener, you will get 10% off your first month by visiting us at BetterHelp.com slash Dopey Podcast. Join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health, and that is BetterHelp BetterHelp.com slash Dopey Podcast. But here he is. From Detroit by way of Los Angeles, from the MC5 and a million other projects, the writer of the hard stuff, Wayne Kramer. Welcome to Dopey.
2: Thanks. Happy to be here.
1: It's a miracle. So the year was 1999. It was Bleeker Street. A, a part. A, a, there was a mag- a Canadian weird magazine called Pop Smear. Does that ring a bell?
2: Yes, I remember Pop Smooth.
1: And you were playing with the Street and cheetahs. And mm-hmm. I, was, I was on drugs and interviewing you and, and the cavalcade of debauchery. And um, I was out of my mind. I, I should look for that, for that uh, footage. Do you remember that show at all or no? Uh, yeah,
2: I do, re- I, I do remember the gig I played in New York with the cheetahs. It was a good one, as I remember
1: yeah I had great great footage of you great footage of you rocking out and um I'd love to see that would you send it over I have it on vhs what i'm going i'm 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 like on the precipice of digitizing all of that old shit and I promise you that when I do I will send you that footage hundred percent thank you it's probably like ten seconds but i i I'll, I'll whatever i have I will totally share with you and uh Wayne Kramer is a rock and roll guitar playing icon out of Detroit and uh, you started the MC5 in like 1964 right? Something like that, yeah. And you were a pioneer you were like the pre-punk rock and roll, loud rock and roll pioneer Um, how important was drugs to the process in the very beginning?
2: Well you know, this is with the benefit of hindsight, and and trying to get a trying to get, have a larger perspective on it. Um, you know, we we championed drug use, although our drug use was relatively benign. Uh, the the drugs we embraced were generally marijuana, um, a little bit of psychedelics, uh, a little bit of weed a little bit of um, downers, but really we were all about herb in those days, and and we kind of were snobs about it because we felt like, well our parents drank, they went to the bar and acted like fools and got into fist fights, and we sat around smoking weed and listening to music and laughing our ass off at the world around us. Um, so. You know, even though we championed drug use, marijuana use, um, it uh, it that's that comes off a little odd knowing what we know today about drug use, totally, totally. It's it's what all referred to as drug use today.
1: Well, that's another thing about I, I just finished Wayne's book, it's amazing. It's called The Hard Stuff, and it is an incredible journey of debauchery redemption and the people along the way and the situations you got into. I couldn't even believe it really. Uh, the first, like, cause we always called them dopey stories, you know, when we started making the show and they were just like war stories, we were going to call the show war stories, but it turned out there was a a show called war stories about actual war. So we just called it dopey. Um, uh, (laughs) The first story that, that really blew my head was, was the way you got out of the draft uh, via, via meth. You, you want to you tell that one?
2: Well, yeah, you know, it was, um, it was a kind of underground communication channel amongst all young men because everyone was subject to conscription. In those days, the government would order you into the army. Uh, You didn't have a choice. And I could not justify serving in an army uh, that was um, murdering Vietnamese, um, murdering Americans with no justifiable reason you know, the, the, the communists weren't coming through the Windsor tunnel from Canada to attack Detroit. Uh, and all I could figure is this must have something to do with this, uh, World War II, um, World War idea of the, the, the communist boogeyman coming for us. The communists are hiding under your bed. And, and, uh, or it has something to do with Shell Oil. I knew that they had oil refineries in the Gulf of Tonkin, and the American military was out there protecting the oil, and neither of which was a a compelling enough reason to join the army and participate in this illegal, uh, undeclared war, And, you know, certainly an immoral uh, and unethical war. So I I decided that I would uh, resist them. And the the best way to resist them that I learned about from my fellows, you know, guys in the neighborhood, other musicians, was to um, go in there and be yourself or maybe be a more extreme version of yourself. Um, so I decided that I would get prepared by staying up on methadrine for 10 days before the physical. So by the time I walked into the Fort Wayne Induction Center, I was certifiably psychotic. Um, you know, methadrine after a couple of days will do that to you and after 10 days, I mean, I couldn't see. I was hallucinating so badly, um, and I just didn't fit into the army program. I just—you think? I didn't. I didn't resist them, but I, but I just—I didn't fit, and uh, they determined that I was uh, unacceptable by current standards, and uh, and declared me one wop.
1: The the other thing that I think is, is obviously very important, if anyone is a fan of the MC5, you know, the music is all about freedom, but there's also a really important social justice component. Now, did the sound and the style come first, or did the ideology come first?
2: It's impossible to separate them. As one evolved, the other evolved, because we were... I am, and people of my age now, um, we're all part of a generation that was in an unspoken agreement that the direction the country was going in was wrong, and we needed to do something about it, that uh, our parents' generation seemed to be uh, blowing it, and blowing it so bad that they could turn the planet into a cinder floating around in space and uh and we just thought we had um some better ideas
1: and you did and you you guys were, were instrumental in the starting of the white panther party which i think is a very timely kind of conversation considering the black lives matter movement and everything that's gone on this year uh how a part of the current social justice movement are you
2: Well um uh, my my work um it mostly involves uh social justice and criminal justice.
1: Like the the the, the, yeah. the, the jail guitar doors thing. I'm sorry, go ahead. The jail guitar doors. Yeah. Which is uh,
2: amazing. Just over eleven years ago, twelve years ago, um my wife Margaret Kramer Billy Bragg and I founded Jail Guitar Doors USA uh, as a 501c3 nonprofit that um, works for a more just America, that uh, hyper-incarceration has proven to be a national uh, embarrassment and uh, uh, international scandal. You know, we have 5% 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, so I, you know, having served time in America's prisons, I knew how bad it could get. And I knew that something had to be done. And, you know, uh, so I figured out what it was I could do. And what I could do is try to to build an organization that would mitigate the damage um, you know, we have destroyed whole communities. We've destroyed families and millions of lives in the process of, uh, of uh, fulfilling politicians' uh, dreams of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, gaining office by being perceived as tough on crime. Right. Um, so what we do is we use the arts, the power, the transformative power of music to help people change for the better while they're incarcerated. If we don't help people change for the better while they're locked up, they, the prison experience itself will make them worse.
1: Totally. So that the chance for them to be able to express themselves, be creative, have something positive while they're locked up, they have a better chance of being a little bit rehabilitated or with a better soul, mindset, whatever worldview when they got out because they had something positive while they were inside.
2: Yeah. And and through this process, they learn skills that they'll need when they return to the community. You know, for example, how to collaborate with people that you might not necessarily hang out with or that you even like. You know, guys on the prison yard, there's a lot of uh, animosity and a lot of resentment, and it's very tribal. And in our workshops, we tell um, our people that um, you have to leave all that out on the yard. That in our workshops, we're all artists, and we can talk about anybody and anything, but we must treat each other with dignity and respect. And we can all just be human beings, which is what people in prison actually are. Absolutely. Just like us.
1: It's amazing, though, Like, and one of the craziest parts about your story, because obviously in your book one of my favorite parts is the jail story, but I don't want to jump ahead because the audience is going to be like, what the fuck, this was a revolutionary guitar player. How did a revolutionary guitar player wind up in prison? But the the real interesting thing to me is when we put together um, art, uh, social justice, and substance abuse. Like when those things happen together, like, is it a, it's a weird brew, right? It, it's hard to, I mean, like, how do you put those things together? Cause you know that, I, I mean, musicians obviously love getting high, um, social justice warrior, everybody loves getting high, but when addiction sets in, it, it, it turns on itself, right? It becomes difficult to be really, really, uh, pronounced as a social justice advocate if you're getting too high, right?
2: Well, you can't do much of anything if you're getting too high. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. You can't be a husband. You can't be a father. You can't be a partner or a bandmate. You know, if you're getting, if you're getting high, then that's what you do.
1: <laughs>
2: and talk about,
1: like, the kind of like the, the middle and the ending of the MC5 where addiction kind of... Uh... You know, it kind of undid every because you put everything together. You put it in place. It was your vision and it was pretty much your addiction that that took it out.
2: Well, no, I, I had some help with that. That's true. <laughs> <clears throat> um, well, the MC5, you know, all rock bands are almost all rock bands have a a life cycle, like everything in nature it's, it's uh, conceived, and it's birthed, and it's nurtured, and it grows, and it flourishes, and flowers, and bears fruit, and then it ages, and it withers, and it dies. <laughs> That's the same with rock bands. They all go through that life cycle. Um, but most rock bands, you know, their, their challenges are uh, internal you know, relationships that, uh, that sour over time. Um, and, uh, uh, and they're worried about um, business, you know, like is the band viable? Can we make a living being in this band? Um, the MC5 had all those pressures. Plus we had the pressure uh, of our political stance, which generated an enormous amount of attention from the FBI and the local police, um, so we we were you know fighting with with both hands tied behind our back, um, you know tied up in court, um, harassed by uh, the Detroit Police Department and the Michigan State Police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, so when when your life all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize you're surrounded by chaos and pressure and negativity. Um, getting high becomes the solution. And getting high wasn't my problem; it was my solution because all of those problems went away when I got loaded. I got a break. I could I could relax. I could I could chill out because I'm high. And uh, unfortunately, um, that solution brings a whole nother set of problems with it. Um, and in the case of the MC5, like many other rock bands, when uh, alcoholism and active, uh, in our case, uh, opiate abuse entered the picture, then everything else uh, is left, uh priority, it drops down on the on the list of things that matter, and pretty soon all you're doing is getting through the gig so you can get the money to go cop and get loaded
1: totally. And,
2: and it, it, you know, it's it, this is a well trod trail, you know, this is nothing new for anybody that's gone down this road. Let me
1: ask you this it's like a band like The Stooges didn't have to carry the weight of being political, they could just be out there rock and roll people. Do you think the political weight kind of like impeded the success at all? Because you couldn't just be this band, you know, this band of junkies, this band of rockers, you had the political component. Do you think it, it hurt at all?
2: I don't think so because you can't, like I said before, you can't separate it. You know, that's who we were. That was the, we took a militant stance. We embraced, um, our, uh, colleagues and our partners around the country and around the world that we're all fighting to change things. Uh, you know, we, we didn't, that wasn't an add on later. I understand. I get it. That was a core belief. You know, when I stood up on the stage and put my hand up in the air in the peace sign or the power to the people fist and, and the kids threw that back at me, we were making a powerful connection because we were speak, we were addressing their concerns directly. Right. I, I never tried to convince someone that I was a, you know, a blues master, and I studied Elmore James, and now I'm going to play the blues for you. You know, I had other things I was concerned with.
1: No, I get it. I get it. And 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 once it's all done, you guys were a, an inspiration to people who who might not have ever heard about any kind of uh, progressive message. So I mean, it's all it's all amazing work you got to do. When was the first time uh, you tried an opiate? Um, I
2: think we were just starting to write our third album, so it must have been about. 1970, 71 maybe. I had been reading about dope fiend jazz musicians, and you know, I, I referred to William Burroughs as Uncle Bill, and you know, I'd read Junkie and uh, and all those. Uh, uh, what was my man's name? Uh, guy that wrote Pimp. I can't think of it. Uh, I used to get his books at the parole office. <laughs> Who was it? Um, uh, 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 It'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, um, you know, I was really intrigued with it. And one of the other guys in the MC5 was using. And he he was a little older than me. And he'd been around the block a couple more times than I had. And he knew about heroin. And so one day I said, hey, uh, next time you go, get me a bag, you know. And, And he did. And I took it home and snorted it up and. Turn the lights down low and listen to John Lee Hooker, because I thought that's what you're supposed to do when you do heroin.
1: <laughs> well, that that works, right? It's Iceberg Slim that wrote Pimp.
2: Iceberg Slim, that's him. That's Iceberg
1: Slim. Slim. Um, and that's that junkie dream, right?
2: Donald C- Goines.
1: Donald Goins.
2: Yeah, that's him.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um that's that junkie dream, right? You have, and, and, one, and you're a guitar player. And I don't think it, you're off the mark thinking that you should listen to John Lee Hooker the first time you snore dope. I think, that, I think that makes sense. You know, I think that's not a bad choice <laughs> for the first time you snore dope. Um, how long did it take before it became something that you were like, oh, well, maybe I like this too much kind of thing?
2: Well, you know, I went along like, you know, get high on Friday night because it's the weekend and then, you know, get fr- high on Friday and Saturday, then get high on Tuesday or get high on Wednesday. It's the first Friday. And then I'm awake. Let's get high. And and uh, and I knew pretty quickly that um that this was completely out of control. I mean, once you first um, start to go through withdrawal sickness, you realize you've got yourself into a, a mess. And there's, you know, in the beginning, when you don't know what getting sick is, it scares you to death because you don't know how far this is going to go. You know, okay, your legs are cramping and you're puking and you have diarrhea and you're all sweaty and, you you know, you're just as miserable. You can't sleep and you can't sit still. And you don't know, is that going to get worse? So you're pretty motivated to go get another bag and or, you know, figure out something you can steal or sell. And, of course, I went through everything, all my clothes, my guitars, my amps, my cars. I sold everything. Everything went in a little hole in Wayne's arm.
1: What was the first time you injected it?
2: You know, it wasn't for a few years because I had the kind of, uh, adolescent fear of hypodermics. So I was, my first habit was about two years long and I just snorted. I was a tutor. We said that benign term, you know, Oh, I just tooted. I just toot a little like bit. It. Totally. Kind of cute, You know, but, uh, I'll tell you what, what turned me out was um, another musician friend brought over a bag of cocaine and said, try this. And I said, yeah, well, give me a straw. And he said, no, no, do this. And he gave me a syringe. So I, I banged a cocaine and realized, that, wow, this is great, you know. And from then on, there, that was the delivery system for whatever I was getting high on.
1: Right. It all changed once you shot the first coke you shot. Yeah, I, I shot a little bit of coke. The guy who died, my friend who died, lived to shoot coke. That was like his favorite thing. Um, how instrumental do you think the opiate, the opiates, were with the demise of the band?
2: I, I'd get, I'd rate it pretty high as, <laughs> as as one of the elements. I mean, because it undermines anything good that you have going on. I mean, you know. So one of the guys in the band was good at, was better at math. So he was supposed to take care of the money. And yet he was in you know, to pay for his drugs. And, and, you know, you can't do anything because you have to go cop first. Like you can't go to rehearsal because you got to go cop. And I can't sit down and try to write a new song. Cause I got to go cop because I can't do anything unless i unless I get straight. And uh, and I wasn't the only one, uh, uh, you know, there were, there were other fellows in the band that, that were using to the degree I was and more. And of course, you know, when you're high, nothing comes in. No new information comes into your brain. So for an artist to have nothing new coming in, then no new art can come out.
1: Right absolutely I think that's really an interesting point because you can't do anything when there's nothing coming in it's like it's just like any other engine you need input to create action or motion or product yep. or anything I get that and I, I have to say when I'm reading the book and the mc5 ended in in the first chunk I was like what the hell is gonna happen now and that's when all hell breaks loose I was like Holy shit. I couldn't believe, because like when I interviewed you in 1999 and I'm on heroin and maybe you're clean, like the irony is thick in my mind, like that you were this person. I didn't know I was this person and I didn't know how bad it was going to get for me because I didn't get clean until, you know, five years ago. I was, I was probably 23 or 25 when we met, you know, I was 25 when we met in 1999. Now I'm 46 And I have almost – I have five and a half years clean now. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is what happened with you is where – that's where it gets really crazy. Uh, That's when like social justice, rock and roll, everything takes a back seat uh, to your drug habit. Um, And do you remember it happening gradually or was it just bang?
2: No, it's gradual. I mean, you know, you you heard the expression, it's a long walk into the woods, long walk back out of the woods. And, you know, it's, it's repeating certain negative behaviors a little here, a little there, just a little more here, a little more there. And, you know, one day you wake up and you're surrounded by scumbags and low riders and hustlers and liars and thieves and cutthroats and backstabbers and murderers. <laughs> and, you know, you say, what happened to my life? You know, <laughs> I used to be surrounded by people that love me. And all I had to do is write some songs and play the guitar and and dance around on stage. And here I am, you know, in a basement. Some, you know, on the east side of Detroit and, you know, these guys all got guns and they're talking about robbing people and shooting them. And, you know, so
1: basically, once you're getting high, you put the guitar down and everything else kind of changes while you're figuring out how to score, basically. And then you realize you haven't picked it up in a while.
2: Well, I never put it down, but you know, it was always there and I was always trying to do something, but my efforts were always undermined by you know, my priorities. I had another job that was more important, and that was to to use, continue to abuse opiates. Absolutely. And, and alcohol.
1: Right. And that's when the the crime started kicking in, right? And that's when that's yeah. when that's when you're in uh, in uh, in Michigan, and and the burglaries begin, right? Which is yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, and I obviously I'm not judging you in a, for a second. I've done terrible things, and lots of the audience have done terrible things. Um, do you remember that period well? Were you were you too high to recall it? Like, what was the first job, and how did it happen?
2: I remember it well because. You know, I was a childhood thief. Um, I, I started stealing when I was a little boy, probably seven, eight years old, maybe nine. I, I just, I thought, you know, I had a lot of time on my mother worked. I was being raised by a single working mom. So she's at work all day and I run the streets. and I find that I can steal little items from neighborhood merchants, you know, the uh, credit department store, and I could go steal toys and candy, and then I'd steal money from my mother. And so I had this um, magical thinking already in me that uh, somehow I could just get away with it, and and there would be no consequence to my stealing. So when I was an adult and, and with, a, with a habit to support Uh, I met a guy, I knew that he was a a thief, Uh, everyone knew that that's what he did on the side, he was a musician, and uh, one day he saw me um, struggling, and he said, hey man, if you want to make some money, you know, you could come to work with me, and I knew exactly what he meant, and and I agreed to do it, and uh, so we started breaking into people's houses and stealing their stuff, it's really... uh, a a, uh, heinous uh, activity, uh, really, really just aberrant and, and, uh, and really, you know, damaging. It's foul. I mean, if you've ever been robbed, the feeling, it just cuts right to your heart, you know, that, that someone came in your home and and they, they went through your stuff and they took things that belonged to you that, didn't belong to them. I mean, it's really, it's, uh, you know, that's what I should have gone to prison for, not for dealing cocaine. <laughs> right. Right. The co- My customers for the cocaine all enjoyed the cocaine, uh, but I should have gone to prison for the, for the home invasions.
1: Terrifying. And nobody was ever home when you went in though. No. Thank God. Oh my God. And then, yeah. So you start dealing coke. And then you get busted in a classic, like goodfellas esque, serious bust. And yeah. um and I mean like for my money, like for whatever reason, when you went to prison and and they transferred you to that junkie Hall of Fame facility in Lexington, Kentucky, I had read about that facility, I think, in in Burroughs books and in other books. Like that's a famous place for the cure, they called it, right? Like junkies yeah. would go there for the cure in the in the beginning of the twentieth century, um, but I couldn't believe it when uh, when Red Rodney shows up in the book. Like that just like blew me away. You know, like what an amazing turn of events. Talk about like what was it like in Lexington first of all, and did they try to treat your drug addiction? Because I I think I remember reading that you were using in there anyway, so <laughs> it must not be that effective of a place for the <laughs> cure.
2: Well, uh, yeah, I did, get, I did get high a few times in there. Listen, you got a, a, a whole little city full of drug addicts. They're going to find a way to get drugs. I mean, I saw a guy, I knew a guy in my housing unit that dealt in there, and I saw him count out. We used to be able to have um, quarters because we had uh, soda machines and fruit machines. And you could have four dollars in quarters a week to buy stuff from the machines. This guy counted out seven hundred dollars in quarters on his bunk every day. Oh my God! And he would use, he would tear he would uh, ch- uh, get it changed through um, the mafia guys, uh, and uh, and then you know if through the visiting room he would send the money out and get his next shipment of dope in. Every day.
1: (laughs) So did you do a bunch of heroin in in prison too? uh, Because I remember you smoked a bunch of weed in prison. Did you do...
2: Yeah, we we smoked weed every day. But, you know, I probably got high four or five times in the almost three years I was there.
1: So you didn't have to maintain a habit when you were in
2: in that prison? Well, I couldn't. I mean, you know, I I didn't have the resources for that. I, I knew guys in there that did have habits... In the penitentiary. They got a fucking habit. (laughs) I thought it was incredible.
1: (laughs) And how did they keep it up? Just with whatever they had to do, right? Well,
2: a couple of them, they were on um, work release or study release. So they could go out during the day and they had like their girlfriends and, you know, their their crew out there to keep them alive.
1: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be wrong. In my in my memory, which is never great, Red Rodney replaced Miles Davis in the Charlie Parker band. Is that right?
2: That is correct.
1: Okay, yes. and uh, I love all that shit. I love all that history, which is probably one of the reasons I was a heroin addict for so long. Um, and, and not, I'm not like a musician like you're a musician, but I would love to play. I found that when I would play, I would ca- I would play to catch a nod. Like, a lot of the time, I would play when I would use, and if I didn't have enough, if I played more, I would find myself nodding just from practicing. Did you ever experience that? Sure. Okay. Um, sure. Now, Red Rodney shows up, legendary jazz trumpet player, legendary junkie. What was that? What Describe the experience a little bit.
2: Well, in you know, I was in my mid 20s then you know prison is a, is a young man's game <clears throat> and uh red was in his late 50s then and he had been he had come back to lexington where he had served time in the 40s and in the 50s and uh he he used to, he used to walk around that place like he was the mayor <clears throat> he said I I mean, I like doing business with established institutions. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> but he was, he was kind of my idol, you know. I mean, he was a dope fiend jazz musician, just the kind of guy that I always wanted to grow up and be. And here we were doing time, you know, him, him back for his third bit and me on my first bit. And I got to see that you know, if I don't change, I'll be him, and I'll be coming back to these penitentiaries again and again. And and uh, but you know, I I didn't. They it was a it was a rehabilitation facility. They encouraged everybody to program. They made a lot of programs available, but the state of the art of recovery. Was nowhere near where it is today, and it was it was woefully inadequate. We didn't even have 12 steps at Lexington. We had you know group therapy and and uh, rational behavior training and positive mental attitude and and you know a bunch of kind of lightweight um, talking cure ideas. Uh, I think the most effective mode modality that we had was transactional analysis TA I know I'm okay you're okay
1: how does that work I don't even know how that works
2: well it it has to do with ego states and that each of us carry around an adult a parent and a child inside us and if my if I come out of my kid to your parent it's not going to work. Or right. if I come out of my parent to your kid, it isn't going to work. It only works if we come out adult to adult.
1: I get it. That makes sense. It sounds to me also like your experience with Red in prison. Like one of my favorite parts is where he tests you to see if you can play and like, yeah. and then you could play changes fast enough for him to be like, okay, we can be friends. I love that. <laughs> um, but it reminds yeah, me. That's,
2: that's That's exactly what happened. He put the, Jazz fake book in front of me and said, Can you read these chords? And I said, I think so. And he said, Okay, we're going to play this one. one one, two, one, two, three. And he started playing the melody on the trumpet, and I struggled with the changes. Because, you know, in bebop, in, in standards, sometimes you get four chords per bar.
1: It's fast. It's fast yeah. and furious. I'm impressed that you kept up. And he's like, what the fuck am I going to do? I'm in jail. This guy's better than nothing. He's, he's ex- he's, <laughs> he was psyched that you could keep up. And I, I, yeah. and I think that's a very beautiful thing in itself. But it also reminds me of like, like the roots of the jail, uh, jail guitar doors thing, that you guys are using music to, to do the time. You know what I mean? You're you're playing gigs, you you're practicing, and, and you you got to work on your craft, and, and it probably made you a much better guitar player.
2: I went into prison a fairly adventurous, uh, you know, rock player, and I think I came out a competent musician. I I could improvise through changes. Um, I I knew some of the. The repertoire, you know, the Great American Songbook. I knew some of the songs that we played, and uh, you know, Red taught me a, a number of songs, and uh, so I felt like you know I actually understand a little bit about uh, music theory at this point, and and uh, my reading improved radically. So, yeah, I, I mean, listen, studying with uh, a musician of the caliber of of Red Rodney was the chance of a lifetime. I mean, you know, he brought, when I, when he played, I didn't hear melodies and chords. I smelled fried chicken. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I I heard Louis Armstrong and I heard 42nd street and, you know, just there was his playing was so vivid and, 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 yeah. um, compelling that, uh, you know, I had to like, often I had to not listen to him because I'd get too distracted.
1: Right. It's amazing because you were so lucky. Cause in a way you had this ridiculous freedom under the most lockdown situation you could have. Like, it's like, yeah. you, it's like, you couldn't make that kind of thing up. You got incredibly lucky. I mean, considering considering you're in jail because you were dealing coke and you're a heroin addict and everything is fucked, you're playing with one of the greatest and you're keeping up. And it's, I hear you when you hear when you smell fried chicken from hearing music. It's that soulful, you know. That's where the soul music Mm -hmm. comes in and the real experience. It's I like hearing that. That that's that's nice. Um, and then when you get out, it gets to the next level of crazy junkie musician shit because i'll fast forward a little you wind you land in new york city and uh and you wind up hooking up with junkie superstar fucking johnny thunders which i never knew about that like how did that happen
2: yeah not another one of my not so great career moves (laughs) he he was a mc5 fan and uh, he told me later that he was in the front row at every gig the MC5 played in New York. And, and uh, uh, apparently, I, I betted one of his girlfriends one night. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about him. but um, uh, So, you know, uh, I first got home. He came to Detroit and, through a mutual friend, uh, invited me down to sit in. And uh, I went down and played with them, and I thought they were pretty sloppy, and, you know, they were kind of all over the map, and, and the bickering on stage between him and Walter was really distracting. But, you know, I saw it as like, yeah, give me a chance to play. I don't want people to forget me. You know, I've been away for a few years here, and so I got up and we jammed, and then he asked me to to if I wanted to hang out and I tried to avoid it because I saw that, you know, the world around him was all about drugs and I was, I just come out of prison. I was trying to, you know, all I had was willpower and that lasted about three days. And then, uh, I went up and hung out with him and his drug dealer manager and I was off to the races.
1: And like, um, Obviously, it's almost the opposite of the the fried chicken Red Rodney experience. You weren't smelling fried chicken when when Johnny Thunders was playing. You're probably smelling dope cooking in a spoon when Johnny Thunders was playing.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was the same thing. It, like I described in the the early days of the MC5, you can't do anything because you got to go cop first. And it was the same with Thunders. And finally, I just said, hey, if you're going, get me too, you know.
1: The thing about Johnny Thunders that... I'm back
2: to my old tricks again.
1: Right. And and, and you're just off and running. He... It's so weird. Like, for me, like, I'm not the biggest New York Dolls fan. Uh, I love... uh, I like the Johnny Thunders solo stuff. Like, the quiet stuff. Like, I think that stuff is pretty cool. Um, Why do you suppose he is this larger than life character in the world at this point. Is it because like, what do you attribute that to?
2: Well, it's a, it's a romantic um, image. You know, he, he believed his own mythology. You know, these are, these are myths that we create around, uh, you know, careers and, and, and artists and, and he created this myth of the junkie guitar player and he he could not separate himself from the myth. I At one point, I, I got myself into a methadone program and I got him into a methadone program. And he lasted two days. He liked being out in the street ripping and running. And, and you know, I hated it. I was so sick of it. And methadone made perfect sense to me. But uh, you know, there, it, for, at arm's length, it's it's a uh, it's it's um, a kind of tragic, romantic uh, image that he represented, and and people are drawn to uh, you know self-destructive artists, and it, and it and it's kind of perverse, really. It's aberrated. Uh, it's, there's something. Um, out of sync with it, but uh, clearly it appeals to, to some people. Right. Most people, it doesn't appeal to most people and most people are just not interested in it and could care less. And, and you know, even in the rock world, I, I don't think there's a great many, if you, if you did a cross section of of contemporary musicians, I don't know there'd be that many of them that would know who he is or what he did.
1: Right. Right. But it's funny because Keith Richards was his archetype, right? That was his, his dream. And I'm sure. And and when you read about Keith, for some reason, Keith never mainlined. He always would muscle all the dope. And I'm sure Johnny Thunders would, would mainline the dope, right? He wasn't muscling the dope like Keith and Keith. Like did he mainline or did he muscle it when he would shoot it? Johnny Thunders.
2: Well, he had no veins left. Right. So, so it was a just a just a horrific, uh, you know, gross uh, scene to watch him digging around in his arms and in his feet and in his groin. And, you know, he was so sick. He, he had boils all over him. And, you know, he was in terrible health when I met him. And it only got worse as time went on. We, we were only together for eight or 10 months, I think. And, and, uh, and, uh, it just, you know, I couldn't bear it anymore. I had to, I had to step away, but, uh, yeah, he, you know, he had no veins. I mean, he never, I m'd his, his dope. And the thing about, Keith, you know, Keith has the best doctors in the world. He gets pharmaceutical drugs and he, you know, I don't think Keith does that much of it. You know, even in his peak, I think he was pretty judicious about the amounts that he would go. I mean, if you read his book, apparently he would stay up on days on cocaine, reorganizing his cassettes. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Totally. And And, it's, you know, he could go to Switzerland and get his drug, his, his blood changed.
1: (laughs) Which he did. And you know, Johnny Thunder's not getting anything changed. Poor Johnny Thunders. Oh man. And that's, and that's interesting too. Just like, the difference between the reality and the romance, the reality yeah. is boils and shooting in your groin and missing and your feet and misery and the romance is some some recording you hear one time, you know what I mean, and he turned up dead in New Orleans, you know, and it was a very sad you know horrible end to him now and 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 around that time when you started doing methadone, it seemed to me from reading the book that that 's where there was some sort of idea that you could maybe get out of it. Like you started talking to people, like people started explaining, like professionals would explain what they had been through. And you were like, this is interesting. Like, was that the beginning of thinking maybe there could be an out?
2: Yeah. I, I, yeah. During, during the eighties, you know, I'd already gone through, you know, heroin for a few years leading up to prison. And then, uh, coming out of prison and moving to New York where heroin was, uh, available and high quality and cheap. And, and, uh, I just, it's such a degrading life that you, that, you, that I was forced to endure, you know, that I put myself in this situation. And I, at a certain point, I just I I said there's got to be an, a way out of it there's got to be a, a way to to uh, live where this isn't necessary and <clears throat> but I, all I had was you know willpower and and yeah you know gotten to the methadone program which which I am still to this day in favor of I, I support methadone maintenance you know there are, there are some among us who um, aren't going to get sober. And I would rather have them go to the clinic once a week and get their takeaways and have a life than um, spend it in the gutter, you know, shooting dope, ripping and running, uh, and die a horrible, junky death, you know, before your time. I mean, you, you could say a junkie death is a natural death, but I mean, there's another natural death that's possible. Um, yeah. So, and it was still um, decades before I I got sober. You know, I I would I I replaced my methadone um, habit with the Wayne Kramer vodka and prescription medicine habit. Well, my I treatment program.
1: <laughs> no, I, I get it. I was on methadone for years and years, and I I never used it responsibly. I always took as many pills as I could when I got my dose, and if I had money, I would shoot dope before I'd get the methadone. And I would do and, and like I agree with you. I support whatever anybody can do to make their life as positive and and happy as possible. And if it's meth if, if it's methadone in the proper way, or if it's methadone to lessen you know the the misery I, I support it when you were on methadone did you do it by the book or were you using other stuff at the same time
2: no i was uh i was a model patient nice you know after a few after a few months they you know i made all my appointments you know i loved going to the clinic it reminded me of prison
1: where did you go where was the clinic you went to
2: it was at beth israel in manhattan
1: which one on 20th street and 3rd avenue yep that shabby one on the corner. I went there for a bit. I was a mess in that spot. I was, that place is, still looks exactly the same. It looks like 1978 on that corner still. It's fucking- yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I, I and I met a, a great uh, counselor there who who re- really helped me. I mean, it was the first time I, you know, I was able to talk to someone that, you know, knew what I knew, that had done what I had done. You know, they put needles in their arms. They had. You know, hurt people and been hurt, and and uh, uh, and so it was helpful to to meet an older man and to talk to him about, you know, prison and and crime and dope and and all the myriad, ten thousand problems that we all endure.
1: Yes, and you could see that, and it was the, it was the spark. I mean, it would t- like you said, it took you decades to get from there to sober. Um, but it was the spark. And one of the other really interesting things I thought was that at that point in your life, you're a world-class guitar player. Obviously you're a world-class addict, but it's at that point that all these sort of normal skills come into you. Like you learn how to, how to build things and build houses and you travel the country, lived in Florida and did roofs. I mean, the roofing in Brooklyn sounded pretty tough, but, uh, but house building was pretty amazing. And like, how, how did that impact your recovery in general when you saw different aspects to your own
2: skill set? Well, I think it was all, a, you know, a, a building process. I mean, the, some of the things I had to do were um, existential crises, crises, you know, like, what am I doing here? You know, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, I can play. I can write songs, I can entertain people. Why what am I doing standing in hot tar with a mop on the roof of a building in Brooklyn in the middle of the winter? And I'm I'm burning up and I'm freezing at the same time. <laughs> um, but you know, as I kind of stumbled along and, and you know found out things that I I, I wouldn't do anymore, like I will never do roofing again. But I found out that I could build things with my hands, that I was good with, you know, a plan and with tools, and uh, and I found that I could support myself outside of music because, you know, music is a tough road to hoe. I mean, if you might be in a hit band and you got gigs and money's flowing, but that's gonna go away. And then you know, then you gotta find another gig. And it's it's tough. And so to start being a cabinet maker where I just show up at the wood shop every day and build nice things for wealthy people, that's what Call
0: from Linda Badelli
2: for me. No, I get and then, it. And it helped me. Musically, because now I don't have to go suck up to some club owner for a $500 gig. And I can say, look, yeah, if you want to hire me, it's $1,000. Or I'm not interested. I don't need it. I don't need the money. I have a job. And I, th- I found it liberating. Also, I think it's
1: awesome that you were capable of doing that. Like, I I don't think I could build a house or a cabinet. And I like like just hearing the craftsmanship come out of you because I could hear the pride. And it kind of also reminded you of who you were, the pride in your music at the same time. And it's like, when you're at your worst, you forget who you are. You forget what you're capable of. And, like, it was inspiring to me to read that stuff. Um, and, And when, like when you turned the corner, I mean, you had made it to California and, um, how did it happen? Because I know you got involved in recovery while you were still using, which I find to be very interesting.
2: Well, yeah, I, um, I was in a marriage that was breaking up and, um, uh, I, I went to a, a drummer I hired was sober and he told me about a meeting called artists living in recovery and so he said, you should go see it. It's kind of interesting. So I, it was in my neighborhood and I'd walk over to the meeting on Sunday mornings. And I was pretty blown away by what I experienced because um, it was all people in the arts dealing with their recovery through the 12-step recovery program. And uh, I met a musician. And I, actually, I, I knew some people there and I asked one of them if he knew a, uh, a couple's counselor and he recommended a woman. And I, we, me and my wife at the time went to meet with her and, uh, she talked to me for a while and she asked me if, uh, you know, how I was doing with drugs. And I told her that I had it all together and I was, you know, I was cool. And she said, Oh, really? I said, Oh yeah, yeah, I. You know, I use if I want to use. I don't use if I don't want to use. So she recommended I meet a friend of hers. And uh, I thought, great, you know, here's another jailbird hustler. He found a, he's found a, a scam out here to avoid going back to prison. this guy called me and, and uh, he wouldn't argue with me, which threw me for a loop. And he invited me to a meeting and I went to the meeting and I knew guys at the meeting, you know, other musicians, like some guys were had started off with me back in Detroit who had come to California and found and fortune. And they were members of this meeting. It was an old men stag. And, uh, so I started attending the meeting and I had been lying to everybody that I was sober because I, I had moved enough times to know that you only get to be the new guy for a little while. And, and so don't blow it this time, Wayne. Don't let anyone see you high in a club. Don't let anyone see you drunk, you know? So I'm, I'm living this covert life and I go to the meeting and I tell everyone that I, I just pulled a number out of my ass. Yeah. Oh, I've been sober uh, uh, six years. Yeah, six years. Sounded like a nice number. Sure. And I was just bullshit and bullshit. Let me ask. And then finally, one day, you know, I I really developed some appreciation for the men in the meeting. and uh, And I started to feel disingenuous. Right. You know, that I'm 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 sitting in this meeting and I'm taking up a chair and I'm lo- bullshitting to everybody. And so I I came clean and told them that I was going to be the only living person to retire from 12 steps. And uh, and they responded appropriately. You know, they said, OK, that's that's cool, Wayne. You know, if you want to come back, come back anytime And you know, some guys were bent out of shape and other guys could care less what I what my problem was. They had their own shit to talk about.
1: Not to mention and that that's in the book. They say go out and experiment and see how it goes, right? That's in too. the book.
2: And that's what I did. And, of course, it went very badly. <laughs> right. So I came back to the meeting. I called my friend and I said, listen, uh, Bob, I'm... Uh, I'm a sick man. I, I I can admit I'm a sick man. I need help. Uh, can you help me? And he said, Wayne, we don't shoot the wounded. And he just cracked my heart open with that response. So I, I went under his wing and uh, he became my sponsor. And uh, he taught me about, um, the principles to live by in 12 steps and um it changed my life
1: that's bob timmons right or should i not say his name should i delete his name
2: that's his name
1: yeah am i allowed to say it or is it shouldn't be said
2: it should be said he's uh dearly departed uh but he was a great man i mean you know i started to see that he was a guy And I I knew lots of guys like Bob Timmons that were bad guys, that were violent guys, that would hurt you and not think about it. Um, And, you know, I knew them in prison. I knew them back in Detroit. And here he was. And from all I could tell, he was a little old man who just helped guys. That's all he did is help people.
1: No, he was legendary. He was a legendary figure uh, around 12 Steps and and around drug addicts. And I don't even remember where I heard of him. I just know that I've heard of his his good deeds. Let me ask you this because the MC5 was like basically, you know, if you trace back the history of music, it was a a huge point of, of diversion in American rock and roll, kind of like the jump off point to punk music, you know, through rock and roll. The jump off point to metal through rock and roll, through big sounds and riffs and and bombastic, chaotic, but very blues based rock and roll. When you show up at these meetings in L.A. with these, you know, rock and roll guys, these punks and, you know, metal guys and and just rock guys who know the history, were they like blown away? Because like you are the, you know, kind of like the uh, originator, you know, they know. Right? Was it was it a thing?
2: It wasn't a thing because you know, in the rooms, we're we're all the same. You know, we're all uh, addicts and alcoholics, and we're all there because something's wrong, and we need to find out what it is and what can be done about it. That's all that matters in in a twelve step meeting. You know, what you do for your job, it's not so important you know, how are you coping with life? That's pretty important.
1: And how's it going? How are you coping with life?
2: Oh, you know, I, uh, I don't have any of that big ticket drama, uh, that, uh, active addicts and alcoholics share, you know, I I don't fight. I don't box with people in bars and, and I don't have people that are looking for me and I'm not looking for anybody. And, you know, my life is uh, you know pretty tame and and uh, and and pretty positive. I um, I have a beautiful wife and a beautiful little boy, and I have good work that I do. But you know, my life isn't perfect, and and I don't do recovery perfectly. I'm a human being. I'm flawed. Um, you know, I'm imperfect. And I will always be imperfect. Um, you know, I, I still struggle with uh, with depression and anxiety. Uh, you know, I, I I use all the tools that I that are available to me. Um, and I, you know, at this point in my my life, I, I have nothing to complain about. How do you I'm deal? Breathing in and out. Say it again. I'm still breathing in and out.
1: Absolutely. And and I cannot uh, thank you enough for taking so much time with us. Uh, I think your book is incredible. Your music is incredible. Check out Wayne Kramer and the MC5 all over the place. And the book is called The Hard Stuff. How do you deal with the anxiety and the depression?
2: Well, I... I Tried uh, antidepressants for a long time, and ultimately they never—they they didn't work. Um, I, I have a great therapist that I've been with for 15 years, and so we talk about it. I'm—I'm uh, I'm talking to a uh, another doctor, a researcher now, about um, psychedelic therapies. You know, they've come a long way with uh, psilocybin, and um, I think that might it might allow me just a, a slight reset. You know, I'm I'm almost good. <laughs> I just every now and then it gets a hold of me, and I and I just uh, you know I, I I get down and. Uh, and so, you know, I do, I try to use the tools that are available, the talk therapy, and, um, uh, you know, if I can try this uh, clinical, the clinical use of uh, psilocybin, I'm willing to try that. Um, you know, I try to remember that uh, it's, it's uh, it, it, it doesn't attack me every day, all the time. It's occasional, sure. And in those occasional moments, I can usually find something to do to treat it in the day I'm in, in the moment I'm in. But sometimes I just gotta suffer.
1: Right, right. We all we all suffer. But did you ever read the letters between uh, Bill Wilson and Timothy Leary, where, Tim, where Bill Wilson's like, "I think AAs would really benefit from LSD." Did you ever read those letters?
2: I have not read the letters, but I'm well aware of his interest in it and his experiments with it after he um, retired from AA. And I think, he, you know, he might have been on to something. I mean, he had his spiritual breakthrough, his blinding white light spiritual moment on Belladonna, which is a psychedelic.
1: Right, right. That's interesting. I,
2: I thought this story that
1: you told... Because when you're on a flight and the stewardess is like, like annoyed that you're so fucked up, and you're like, oh, that can't be me. That's got to be this guy <laughs> that's making you crazy. And then you kind, I felt like your your end of your run, I found very similar to the end of my run, where I was just like, I cannot believe this is me at this point. You know, and like, it's not it's not a Belladonna fucking microdose psilocybin ayahuasca thing. But it's, no. but it's something, you know what I'm saying? It's something it, it's, it's uh it's that moment of change and clarity. Do you ever consider this ayahuasca business or no way?
2: Nah, I, you know, I gotta, I gotta stick with the clinical application. You know, I, I have friends that, uh, that have gone to South America and, and taken ayahuasca and, and they swear by it, but I'm not going to, I, you know, I have to, uh, I gotta do things by the book really. Totally. <laughs> I'm going to stay married.
1: <laughs> well, that sounds smart. That sounds very smart. And now, as, as like a, like a, a, a lead of the 60s psychedelic revolution, how much of it is some like old school feeling of longing, like the fact that it can be a clinical trial of a microdose of psilocybin, how much does it scratch that old itch of like being the psychedelic
2: warrior? I don't know. I don't uh, ask me after I, if, if I get it, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in later. Perfect.
1: Wayne, thank you so much for your time. You were incredibly generous. Uh, I th- think you're a legend of rock and roll and sobriety. So thank you.
2: You're so welcome. I- I'm happy to be able to talk about a lot of this stuff, um, at the depth that we've gone because, you know, often in uh rock and roll interviews, it's, it's, it's you know,
1: we don't go this deep. <laughs> well, good deal. Good deal. So let's do a follow-up after the clinical trials of psilocybin, okay? Okay. Fair enough. I'm dying to hear what happens. And 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 thank you so much, Wayne. I really, really appreciate it.
2: You're very welcome. Right on, man. Take care.
1: So I thought that was awesome. That was Wayne Kramer of the MC5. Uh, you don't get stories crazier than that. Crazy, 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 in my opinion. I still have not yet opened up the new gear, but I I think it's going to happen soon. I think I've promised a lot that it will happen, but uh, I'm intimidated by it, but I think it will happen soon. I'm I'm afraid of being disappointed. And, And speaking of fear of being disappointed, I have my father on the phone. Welcome back to the show, Dad.
3: Yeah. Hello. Hi. Hello, everybody. What are you afraid of? Open up the gear. No, I'm afraid. I'm
1: afraid that you're going to disappoint me on the show, like you usually do. <laughs> and listen, what am I? It's easy for you to say. What are you afraid of? I spent all this money, and if it doesn't work well, it's just a lot to learn. It's a you know whatever, whatever. I don't know why I haven't opened the phone. Maybe I'm too busy with work and dopey and stuff to open it up. But I plan on opening it up. Maybe. When I get off the phone with you, Dad, what do you think about oh, that?
3: No, that's great. That's great. That's a terrific idea. You should get you should do it. All
1: right. So, well, it was very it's a very exciting day in the history of Dope because I think today was our first piece of New York Press coverage. Would you I th- or I guess we were in the post one time on page 6 when Scout Willis was on. Do you remember that?
3: Yeah, I know you were. Absolutely, yes. You were on in the New York Post. Absolutely.
1: Would you say this is our first major New York press, Dan?
3: Yeah, Newsday is a very, very big newspaper. It was terrific. It's a good article. Uh, very good article. Um, and uh, this guy who wrote the article was on your show once, too.
1: Yes, but before we get to the article, I want to say... He's, my dad is going to read the article, and he's saying it was a good article. But when I called him up, he said, "And this is classic." He said he went to find, to look for the paper, but nobody sells Newsday in Manhattan anymore, right, Dad?
3: Well, the Long Island Railroad is, I you know, is Penn Station, so I figured the Long Island newspaper would be would be there. But they're renovating the whole station, so a lot of the newsstands were were, were gone. So. I don't know, but remember, the print press is in deep trouble, so it's certainly online. You know. Nowadays. Where did you get it?
1: Where did you get the paper?
3: Uh, it was on on Facebook, on Facebook, and I somehow figured out how to copy and paste it, So that, and then I printed it.
1: So you didn't get the actual newspaper?
3: I did not. I could not get the actual newspaper. I just got the actual article.
1: That's sad. Anyway, what was I going to say? Um, did I tell you, it was, it was this, the writer was a guy named Lane Filler who had been on Dopey, and did I tell you when we went out to eat what he ordered to eat?
3: No, what did he order?
1: We went out for breakfast, and I had a cup of coffee. He got a six-egg omelet.
3: Holy cow, wow.
1: A six-egg Western omelet, and guess who bought it?
3: you paid for breakfast for him
1: I, I didn't know how much they could possibly charge for a six egg omelet it was it was intense
3: Crazy. Oh, wow yes well, maybe one day you'll take me out for breakfast that would be a treat
1: okay why don't you why don't you read the article dan
3: i should read the article this is a huge article
1: just read the article please
3: all right this is a newsday may 6 2021. Deep in the blue, in the big book, the operations manual of Alcoholics Anonymous is too often overlooked, has a too often overlooked point, and it's highlighted. We are in a glum lot, the passage from the 1939 no, it No, it says
1: we aren't a glum lot.
3: That's what I just said. We are not a glum lot, the book said. It was 1939. If newcomers can see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. And then David M., that's you. A 46-year-old recovering addict from Sable puts out the popular and acclaimed dopey podcast. (laughs) It was acclaimed, yes.
1: Popular and acclaimed.
3: That's right, and acclaimed. A weekly program on addiction has been adding levity to this discussion for five years with heartening, harrowing results. A popular saying on addiction goes, At first my using was all fun, then it was fun but with consequences, and then it was all consequences. At the core of Dopey is the belief that the humor and active addiction can be valuable to people in recovery. With addiction raging through the pandemic, his approach is needed more than ever. David believes the entertainment value of the mishap shouldn't be lost. That's not new. The best 12-step groups have hilarity in their DNA, but it is a truth many people considering recovery need to hear. Do I have to keep reading? This is a long article, folks.
1: I think you're like halfway through.
3: Uh, All right. In 2016, David and a fellow recovering heroin addict, Chris, whom he met in rehab in 2011, birthed the idea for a podcast featuring discussion of the hilarity in addiction and leaving out the boring stories of recovery. It's a hit. The Dubby podcast has been featured on This American Life and detailed in vice with tens of thousands of downloads a month. And guest stars like Andy Dick, Artie Lang, Mark Maron, and addiction doctor Drew Pinsky. Uh, uh, All right, I'm not going to mention who else. Oh, yes, Jamie Lee Curtis and Kristen Johnson, the guy left it out. David, who lives with his partner and their two children, my grandchildren, pays a lot of bills, (laughs) yes, pays a lot of bills via Dopey. Supplementing that income working at a legendary Manhattan Deli. I wonder why they don't. I
1: wonder why he talked about the money and why he didn't mention Katz's. But anyway, continue.
3: Well, yeah, I was about to mention the legendary Manhattan Deli is Katz's. Uh, I'm surprised. I'm surprised.
1: I'm surprised he didn't mention how big your country house is.
3: Yeah, well, he didn't mention me at all. Well, I don't. I got got criticism from my audience that he didn't mention me.
1: Okay, keep going. (laughs)
3: But the show and David also took a tragic hit in 2018 when Chris died of a heroin overdose, secretly relapsing after taking painkillers for an injury. I didn't want to stop doing the show, David said, when I interviewed him in a Blue Point diner when he ate a 10 egg. Six
0: eggs.
3: How many eggs? Six. Oh, okay. We met when I was a guest on episode 262. He is about to record the 300th, which I guess is coming, when next week or week after this week?
1: Next week, Dad.
3: Yeah. I loved I uh, having the audience, he said. It was my dream, and some people counted on their weekly dose. But the emphasis changed a bit with the humor of recovery, given space next to tales of it and more interviews to make up for the back and forth that died with Chris. The show has become more popular than ever during the pandemic. Dopey Nation offerings now include 28 Zoom meetings a week and scholarships have been sent uh, to nine people to rehab for free. And now more than ever, it can resonate with an addictive seeking connection. Addiction is at least partially a disease of isolation. It's not surprising that COVID-19 has heightened problematic use with deadly overdoses on Long Island, up about 50% in 2020 compared to 2019. Meetings have moved online or to backyards with limited attendance due to COVID rules and are harder for newcomers to find. Desperation Loneliness, fear, stress, and anger are crescending. It is a glum time. Uh, is that wait,
1: hold on, hold on? Is that a word? Crescending? Isn't it be crescendo- crescendoing? Yeah.
3: Well, he, he's he's entitled to. I would think News Newsday would have a way of checking his writing, but crescending uh, is is good enough. It means it's really spiking upward.
1: I think it would be crescendoing though.
3: Yeah, but maybe that's yeah. I think he did write. I, I just maybe not pronouncing right. Maybe crescendoing. Yeah, right. maybe,
1: maybe maybe you're just not reading it well because you you sound like a not good reader. Continue, please.
3: <laughs> you want me to read this whole thing? I told you it was too long. Just please continue. Anyway, he was crescendoing. He was it was crescendoing. Okay. Uh, where am I? Um, oh I, God! I lost my place. God help uh, us. You, Okay, Uh, it is a glum time and it has fueled addiction and relapse. But those in recovery generally are not a glum lot. Those in active addiction often are. Recovery is better than active addiction. And Dopey's message delivered in a gritty New York voice whose truth resonates with many addicts is unique and powerful. Nice. Very nice.
1: So what do you it's, think?
3: I think it's terrific.
1: You know what I, I think? I think Newsday's no. Day, News never going to hire you to do the uh, audio version of their newspaper.
3: Look, you know, I did the best I can. By the way, I, I didn't have my good reading glasses on, and some of the type is sort of Blurry because of me trying to take a picture of it off Facebook. So it's,
1: that's a that's I, a that's. I, that's, a, that's what
3: I, did. I thought I did a good
1: job. Yeah, considering that's a printout of a picture that Linda posted on Facebook, I think you did a good job too. Um, oh, good. All I right. I went to my meeting this morning, and this old guy. I get there, and an old guy is like holding the paper, and he's like, "Did you see it?" And I hadn't seen it, and he uh-huh. and he gave me the paper, and I sat down and I read it, and whenever. I think whenever I read about Chris, um, outside of, I I think whenever I read about Chris, especially in a public way, it really just, uh, it hurts me, you know?
3: I know it it is hard. Uh, I listen, I, I, I really feel the same way. I really do because it's, Uh, it's
1: emotional to have any kind of success when he doesn't get to have the success.
3: Yeah. Well, that's look, the point is, the point is, is that you kept the thing going, and it's helped. And it's helped a lot of people. By the way, how many papers did you buy? You should go out and get some papers. I'd like to have a copy.
1: Why don't you go out, you cheapskate? I they sell come. Newsday We're around right
3: the right. city. You're in. You're on Long Island. You, 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 you <laughs> can go to the nearest store and get the Newsday. Here, I can't find it anywhere.
1: All right, just calm down. I'll, I'll get you a paper. Okay. You know how much they no. charge for Newsday?
3: Oh yeah, I know. So it was it two bucks?
1: I think it's two fifty.
3: Wow. Yeah. Anyway,
1: so I got an email today. You want to hear the email? It's, yeah. It's very. There
3: are no more iTunes reviews. I mean, people have stopped. It's it's that same last one that was there.
1: All right, let's let's just take a second here. Listen, yes. Dopey Nation. My dad has a really hard time if there aren't new reviews. So please right. go on iTunes, leave a review. It's much better if it's five stars, and my dad will read it on the show. Okay, right, Dad. Yeah, okay.
3: Thank
1: you. Thank yes. You. Now,
3: uh-oh. <laughs> what are you going
1: to do about that? I'm
3: going gonna... I'm to disconnect it. All right. See, I disconnected
1: it. It's very nice. All right. I'm going to read you this thing. It's very emotional. Are you ready?
3: Uh, I guess so. All
1: right. It says, uh, hey, David, I read about your podcast in Newsday today. I bet you are getting a lot of mail. I haven't. I only got this one email. But anyway, uh, my son Alex died of a heroin fentanyl overdose on April 8th, 2018. I do a scholarship each year for welding in his honor. He was a welder. But I really like your idea of the scholarships for people to go into recovering to I guess into, into treatment for no charge how can I donate to that it's a great idea thank you for your efforts in the heartbreaking battle Jesus Christ dad I thought you disconnected the fucking phone it rang you have to keep it disconnected for the rest of this recording
3: I can't do that there's seven phones here I can't oh my
1: keep, God. I thank, keep Come on. thank you for your efforts in the heartbreaking battle against addiction and death from heroin and fentanyl I would call into your show sometime, but I would probably just cry the whole time. Have you ever done a show about the grieving parents left behind? I always thought that maybe uh, that might just change someone's mind or give them a little bit of strength that they need. I actually used to take photos of myself sobbing and think I would turn it into a poster. Jesus, Dad.
3: Keep going. Yeah, keep going. If the phone
1: is still ringing, why should I keep reading it?
3: It's gonna stop.
1: I actually used to take photos of myself sobbing and think I would turn it into a poster to put around schools. This would this would be your mom after you overdose on heroin, it would say. I know I'm nuts, but anyway, do your good work, David. Best Carol. What do you think about that?
3: Well, I thought you should have uh, people, the family members as guests sometimes, too. You know, I think you did it once or twice with somebody who wrote a book uh, talking about, you know, the difficulty. We did family it. We
1: did it with Stephanie whittles We did it. We did it with Arden twice. We did it with Chris's parents. We did it with Todd's sister. We do it all the time.
3: Yeah. All right. Well, then if you had Arden and Chris's parents and, and Todd's sister, they, they dealt with death. You know, so you did that as well.
1: So maybe we'll do more. Maybe we'll get Todd's parents on sometime. Uh, I know that there's other parents that want to come on. Uh, it's very emotional, though, obviously, right?
3: I know. It's very hard. Yeah, it is. It's very hard to talk about it, and it's very hard to listen to it. But it's the truth. I mean, that's what's fentanyl stuff is just horrible, really horrible. Um, you know, anyway, <laughs> uh, is can I say something humorous now?
1: if you can try anything any other criticism you might have before you go any criticisms from last week's show
3: uh, no, 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 no. I bet you, you know, that phone has been ringing. I, I wonder if it's important. I'm going to have to, after I, I after I hang up with you, I'm going to find out if somebody left a message. Uh, no, I don't have any criticisms. I do not have any criticisms of the show. Um, I think, uh, I think it's doing great. I think you're doing a good job. And, uh, I don't know if you if you're can do something special for the 300th, but I thought you were thinking of something. I don't know. Maybe something.
1: I know you have no ideas. Um, have you ever noticed, Dad, have you ever noticed before that we, I started making this show and uh, having you on the show, how critical a person you are? Uh,
3: you ask for the truth, you know, and, you know, if everybody, you know, doesn't tell you what the truth is, how are you supposed to uh, get new ideas about things? For, I mean, obviously, obviously listen, is Nonsense.
1: I play, to, you know? I play to a person's strength. And I know that you're an incredibly critical person, so I have you criticize the show. But how about when my 11-year-old daughter gives <laughs> you a picture of you that she drew, do you think that's the appropriate time to be critical?
3: Of course not. No.
1: And Absolutely he, not. My I'm beautiful terrible. my no, that's beautiful terrible. daughter
3: terrible. My, I didn't criticize
1: You said, this doesn't look like us, that doesn't look like me, and then he gave it, shush, he gave it back to her, and he said, maybe you should color it in. Maybe that will make it look more accurate. And my daughter, who's a trooper, didn't say anything because she knows her grandfather is sick. She knows her grandfather has a serious... <laughs> That's not nice. A That's seri- not true. It's a
3: It's not true. She gave it back to me. I have it. No, no, I no,
1: no, 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 no. no. Let's tell Everything the story. Everything
3: fine Shh. with me and my... And let's, my just, let's, just, let's
1: just finish the story the way it actually went down, uh, <laughs> which was she, she gives him the picture. He stares at the picture, straining his eyes to indicate his displeasure. Then he says, maybe you should color it in, and I'll come back and get it. And she says, okay... And she decides to ignore him like any sensible person would do. She takes the picture back with the tears in her eyes, but she's tough and she doesn't do anything. Then a month later, my dad comes back to visit and Linda hands my dad the picture. And do you remember what you said?
3: I said how wonderful it was. No,
1: that's not what you said. You said, I thought she was going to color it in. So terrible. So I ask you again, I <laughs> mean, I'm going right, to yeah, ask Toby you, Nation.
3: uh, I, I, it's almost true what he said, but not entirely. True. What is not Everything true?
1: What is not true?
3: The part that she's upset with me.
1: I didn't say she was upset with you. I said she had tears okay. in her eyes when you handed her the picture back and said, maybe it would look good if you colored it in is what you said. That was all true. I never said she was upset with you. The point yes. is, let's get to the end of the point. The point is, do you realize that you might be overly critical of the people that you love?
3: Maybe, yeah.
1: And are you willing to maybe make some changes in your life, Dad?
3: Yes. Well,
1: what what are you going to do?
3: I will try to be better and more considerate of others' feelings. Think first before you speak.
1: I think, it's, I think you should think more about being overly critical of Dopey and less critical of everybody under the age of 11.
3: Um, I, I'm trying to think that. Yes, okay. Yes.
1: And if you were to criticize your segment today, what would you come up with?
3: It wasn't great, especially the last five minutes of this discussion.
1: I think this, yes. is, this has been my favorite part of the whole episode. And this was a good episode. So thank you, Dad, for coming through. You want to say goodbye to the Dopey Nation? Yes.
3: Yeah, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris.
1: Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris, and thank you, Dad.
0: All righty. Bye-bye, everybody. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's time noon where I stand Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds Cause peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good, so bad Wanna be good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good, so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad, and I want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad, and it's all I ever had, and I want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had,
2: and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had.